On any given day, leaders have a lot coming at them. Paying attention is a continual challenge for most of us. In this episode, what the science says about how we can all do just a little bit better. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 566. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Just yesterday, I was having a conversation with one of our Academy members and talking about their schedule and what it looks like. And as we went through her day and we looked at hour by hour by hour by hour of all the meetings that she's involved with, not only yesterday, but almost every day, I realized how easy it is for us as leaders to get caught up in the busyness and in the conversations and not to be able to pay attention as much as we'd like to. It's a theme I've been seeing for years, not only in my own work, but of course with so many of the people I work with. And I bet it's a theme for you too as a busy leader. Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert that's going to really help us to look at some of the realities, some of the neuroscience, and also, perhaps most importantly, what are some of the practical things we can do to do a better job at paying attention to what's happening around us and the important conversations we're having each day. I'm so glad to welcome Amishi Jha to the show today. She is Director of Contemplative Neuroscience and Professor of Psychology at the University of Miami. With grants from the Department of Defense and several private foundations, she leads research on the neurobasis of attention and the effects of mindfulness-based training programs on cognition, emotion, resilience, and performance in the venues of education, corporate, elite sports, first responder, and the military. She launched the first ever study to offer mindfulness training to active duty military service members as they prepared for deployment. She discovered that without intervention, attention is compromised and attentional lapses increase. Yet, with mindfulness training, attention can be strengthened and protected. In addition to her published research, her work has been featured in many outlets, including TED, NPR, and Mindful Magazine. In addition, she has been invited to present her work to NATO, the UK Parliament, the Pentagon, and the World Economic Forum. She is the author of Peak Mind, Find Your Focus, Own Your Attention, Invest 12 Minutes a Day. Amishi, what a pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you, Dave. Well, we should probably look at the start of this word attention, right? Like we all value attention. We often ask for the attention of others. And of course, I think many leaders, as I mentioned in the introduction, struggle with attention. And yet, I don't know if we all know what the word really means. And when you think about this word attention, what is it? Yeah, it's great to talk about this topic, especially with the audience that you have, because in some ways I shorthand attention to say it's the brain's boss. And I mean mm. that wherever attention goes in terms of where we pay attention, the rest of the brain's information processing follows. And, you know, as a neuroscientist who studies attention in my lab, we have been pursuing understanding how this works in the brain for many, many years. And what we've come upon is that, indeed, it is the case that from very early on, within a couple hundred milliseconds, you know, thousands of seconds, 
we see that the nature of how we pay attention and what we pay attention to recalibrates everything else. So in the broadest sense, attention is a very powerful brain system. And there are many varieties of attention, but the one kind of concept that anchors it all together is that attention allows us to privilege some information over other information. Yeah. And as I was reading through your research, there were three words that came up that described attention, which maybe we could look at in, in, in detail a bit. The, you describe attention as powerful, fragile, and trainable. Tell me a bit about those three and, and why each one is critical. <laughs> yes. And what you described in those three words and what I describe in the book in those three words is essentially my research program, what my lab has been up to for the last couple of decades. And so let's start with powerful. I alluded to that a moment ago, saying that it's the brain's boss and that it's about privileging some information over other information. But maybe I should take a moment and break down kind of how this system really works and how it's fractionated into subsystems that allow it to have so much power. Sure. So, you know, the first way would be in terms of privileging information and selecting some information over other information. We can think of attention as, and I like to use these metaphors because I find them very helpful, as a flashlight. And this is something called the brain's orienting system. And I use that flashlight metaphor because it really is so similar. So if you were in a darkened path or in a darkened room and you had a flashlight, wherever you shine that flashlight is going to be super helpful in getting privileged, crisp, clear information from whatever it is that you're able to shine it upon. Same idea with attention. When we orient our attention, what happens is that we privilege and get better access, higher quality access to the information that we are focusing on. And, you know, this is not just about attention to being directed toward the external environment. It can happen in the same way toward the internal environment. So if right now I say, take that flashlight of attention and think about really direct it toward your memory of what you had for dinner last night. Hmm. Now, probably you weren't thinking about dinner last night in the middle of this podcast. Right. But now, but now I that now. I've said it, <laughs> you can draw it up. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happened in that moment is that of, of all the information available to your mind, which isn't always being accessed in the moment, the flashlight of attention, this orienting system allows it to, to come up, come to mind, and then you direct the flashlight in order to probe it. So, you know, you'd get the information about what's going on. So that's from your memory, but we can also use our this flashlight notion to follow a train of thought that allows us to make decisions and allows us to pursue and 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 proliferate ideas as well. So this notion of a flashlight is both, it's a great metaphor because it just like a flashlight, we can hold it, we can direct it, it can go to the internal environment, the external environment, and much many different kinds of mental content. But that's just privileging information based on content. There's another way we can actually privilege information. And it's not about what it is, it's about when it's happening. So this is a very different system, something called the alerting system. And the metaphor I like to use for this system is like a floodlight. It's broad, expansive, unlike that flashlight that has a ni nice, bright, narrow beam. The, the floodlight is broad and, and really is about paying attention to what's going on right now in a receptive manner. So if you want to think about how this might show up uh, in our actual experience, you're driving down the road and you see a blinking yellow light, you know, near maybe a construction site or a school zone or a strange 
turning circle, whatever it is, when you see that, it cues you to use this mode of attention, mm. broad, receptive, attentive to what's happening right now. In that moment, you wouldn't want to use the flashlight because you have no idea what to expect. A car coming from another direction or children running into the street, whatever it is, you need to be there so you can take action quickly as it's needed. So I think that, you know, just understanding that both of those we know are ways of paying attention quite different from each other. And then there's a third way of paying attention that, again, I think relates very much to the to the those listening to us now, something called executive control. This way of paying attention privileges not certain content like what's in our environment or happens to be in our mind in the moment or the present moment, but it privileges content tied to our goals. And that term executive is used in, in cognitive neuroscience, my field, very much like it is in the business world. An executive's job is not to do every single task of an organization, but to ensure that what is occurring aligns with the goals of the organization. And the same thing here, executive control's job is to hold the goals in mind and to monitor performance of the person and ensure that there's an alignment between the goal and performance and when there's not to make course corrections. So that gives an answer to kind of the way in which we pay attention. And sometimes that third system, the executive control functioning, I'll talk about as a juggler because it's like keeping all those balls in the air, all the various demands and goals are to be kept in the air. None of the balls should drop and you should ensure that behavior and goals align. All of these things we use to, to really, I would say, allow attention to fuel our success. And it goes back to that notion of it being powerful. And we use it for thinking, for feeling, for connecting, all of it. But that also means when something is quite powerful, to get to the next word that you, you pointed out, fragile. You know, that's when something being fragile can be more problematic because the more powerful it is, the more likely that that there'll be massive and devastating consequences when it, there are errors or problems within the powerful thing. So, you know, maybe to discuss a little bit about what it means to be fragile, what we learned in my lab is that, you know, it's not just that attention is powerful when you can know the brain circuits of, of how it executes its functioning for to do all the different things I just described with these metaphors, but there are certain things, certain kinds of mental states and uh, environmental and, and experiential conditions that will disable and deplete attention. And the top three that we see, and I, I refer to these as kryptonite, essentially, because it's like, you know, we got this powerful thing, but it can fall apart quite easily. Yeah. The three kryptonite conditions are essentially stress, meaning our experience, our perceived stress is really perceived distress. We don't feel we can accomplish or meet the demands that are before us. Um, so stress, threat, threat, meaning not just our physical safety, but really even what we call psychosocial threat. So your reputation, your goals, your purpose, something is being threatened. And then poor mood or negative mood. And, you know, stress, threat, and poor mood are just part and parcel of what it means to be a human being. But for leaders, it's actually extremely consequential because that is when leadership really matters. When things are steady state and everything's going well, you know, a leader's job is pretty straightforward. That's not when really we, we are called upon. We're called upon when there is a challenge. And typically that is characterized by conditions that the leader, him or herself, or others that they're leading will feel stressed, threatened, or definitely in some kind of a negative mood. 
When you said that, I was just thinking like how that is the life of so many of the folks that listen to the show of that fragility, it, not so much because of them, but because the of the work they do in the environment they're in of the phone rings or the email comes in or the next meeting and all of a sudden the day isn't theirs anymore because of circumstance or because of the last conversation. And it's... It, it, I'm so impressed with how much people do hold together. I think the juggling analogy is so beautiful. And yet, I know that pulls on people every single day. Yeah, and what I would say is to remember that that feeling of of feeling challenged or that this is a lot, to not add that to the mixture of stress, threat, and poor mood. Like to accept, yes, the nature of the demands that I face as a leader will challenge and compromise my attention system in a very predictable manner. There's nothing wrong with me per se, if I feel challenged by these circumstances, because oftentimes we feel like we should do better or know better, even though things are challenging. And that push against the reality of the challenges leaders face is actually a stressor in and of itself. So to sort of put put to the side or even just accept, yes, this period of time is going to feel uh, in this way. So, I mean, the reason I say all of that is that oftentimes people think of attention as like, oh, I just can't focus, right? I'm distracted by my phone. Mm-hmm. But it's so much more than that. It really is this entire terrain of leadership. And in fact, um, you know, Ron Heifetz uh, at Harvard talked about this and he really, I think he typified it well. He said, attention is the currency of leadership. Mm-hmm. And I really think that that's true, which is why figuring out a way to do the last word that you noticed, you know, powerful fragile, figuring out how to make it trained up, make knowing that it is trainable is so useful. And my lab has been pursuing ways to do that. Yeah, it's really fascinating, some of this. And one of the other terms that I think may be helpful for us to explore a bit so folks can really appreciate some of the tactics they could use is the term working memory. And you talk about that a lot in your work. And I'm wondering if you could frame what working memory is and how does it relate to attention? Right. Working memory in some sense is like the close cousin of attention. (laughs) They're very much related to each other, especially that executive control aspect. You know, when people hear the term, they might uh, pick up on that memory aspect. So it's working memory, but don't focus so much on the memory part. It is about memory, but not like long-term memory of events or episodes or knowledge we hold. It really is the working piece that we want to emphasize. And I like to use a metaphor here as well, because I think it's helpful. So think of working memory, sort of like the cash in your computer. It's what you need to have in the moment and use in the moment, not save forever. You're not saving it in your a folder on your computer's hard drive. You're actually just keeping it upfront and present. What we need working memory for is to keep at the front of our mind, everything that's needed in the moment. And I like to use the metaphor of working memory, like the mind's internal whiteboard, a scratch space, but it's a peculiar kind of whiteboard. It's not like writing it on the whiteboard and it's there forever. It's a whiteboard with disappearing ink. So it's constantly being uh, refreshed, if you will, or we, it's constantly being blanked out. So we've got to keep refreshing it is another way to say it. So you write something down. Let's say, you know, you're in the middle of, you're in the middle of having a meal. The check comes and you got to calculate the tip. Just got to do simple math. We mm-hmm. use our working memory. Yeah. Um, and, but we don't need to remember those numbers and the exact calculations done forever. It vanishes. Same idea with 
conversation and speaking. Like right now, you know, Dave, you might have a point that you really want to make sure you get in and it's at the front of your mind, but you're a polite guy and you're not going to just interrupt me to say it. You're going to hold it in your working memory. It's written on the whiteboard at some appropriate time in the conversation. Shortly after it comes to your mind, you will deploy it into the conversation and then it'll vanish from the whiteboard. So working memory has a lot of really interesting features. The fact that it exists is really helpful because now we understand, okay, there is this scratch space kind of internal buffer. It's very limited, not more than a a minute, really, is the duration of it. And we constantly, to keep things on our whiteboard, we must refresh, meaning rewrite. That's another kind of way to think about it. If I write something on, like, let's say you got asked by your spouse to pick up something at the grocery store. You know, he or she calls you and says, you're driving. They call you and they say, okay, get these three items. And you're like, man, I can't, can you just text me? Like, no, I can't text you. You have to remember it. And you're (laughs) pulling into the parking lot. You're like, I'm never going to remember this. So what do you do? You just repeat it to yourself over and over and over again. Essentially what you're doing is refreshing and ensuring that it stays on, on the whiteboard long enough for you to either text yourself or write it down in your notepad, whatever it is, but not forget it. And so the relationship between attention and working memory is that attention is almost like it's the it's the intro, it's the introduction of materials that will go onto the whiteboard, right? If if you're not paying attention, you're not going to ever get the information to be able to encode it and write it on your whiteboard. But it's also the way that we get information from our working memory. So let's say, just going back to that example I gave a while ago of what did you have for dinner last night? You, you basically probed your long-term memory that brought it up to working memory. So now it's on your whiteboard. You're, you're trying to, you know, you have now all the details of what the meal was. And then your attention allows you to say it back to me if I ask you. Hmm. So these are fluid and dynamic systems. But the other features of working memory, other than its short time span, is that it's quite, quite limited. And it's, it's how much information it can hold. And if you overload it, things are going to not go well. So if, you're, if your spouse had said, you know, 20 items instead of three, there's no way you would have been able to remember them. Uh, so thankfully, it was within the limits of working memory. But again, that same system, just like attention, is prone to depletion under stressful, threatening, or negative circumstances. And one of the biggest reasons that that happens is that we clutter our own working memory up with internal preoccupations so that there's not even any space for anything else to be written because we're so generative in our own mind with a content that isn't necessarily helpful, whether it's a worry or a rumination or whatever it is, we're disadvantaging ourselves by not leaving enough space on our whiteboard to use it for the task at hand. You know, it goes right back to the analogy of the RAM or the cache that um, it doesn't happen quite as much these days with computers, but back when we were all limited so much more with memory, like you'd open up three or four programs. And if you opened up the fifth, then all of a sudden, like the whole computer would start to not come to a halt, but things would slow down. And there literally wasn't space on the memory. So it would have to go through, jump through all kinds of hoops. And I was thinking about that in the context. And I, I pulled up a, a paragraph from this part of the book because it it really leapt out to me when I thought about the leader who's going from meeting to meeting to meeting and like adding things to their to their working memory. You write in the book, everything your brain does now becomes calibrated to what's on your whiteboard. It isn't just that it seems as if you're experiencing whatever you're thinking about instead of what's right in front of you. It's that neurally, that's exactly what's happening. Your working memory is a great tool for memory and also a major point of vulnerability. 
If it's occupied with other content besides the experience you want to encode or the information you're trying to learn, there won't be effective memory making. And I, I read that and I thought, if on your working memory is everything that happened in the last meeting and you go into the next meeting, <laughs> that there's there's just not the space. I mean, if I'm, if I'm hearing you right now, this is just not the space to even pay attention to what's happening in the next conversation. Absolutely. And this is a huge point of uh, importance for, for leaders because often we don't even, we're not even aware that our whiteboard is overtaken by content that is not relevant for the moment. We're just saturated with it, right? So to even have the knowledge, like I need to let go of the meeting that I was just at and arrive at the meeting that I'm in now. Mm. It's very, very important. And even if you have that desire, like I should be here right now, I need to listen to what's happening in this meeting. You Even let's say you get the awareness that my whiteboard is overtaken by, by preoccupation from something else, you may not be able to on demand, empty the whiteboard to be able to fill it up with what's happening right now. And that actually leads us back to the point that you, you word you mentioned a while ago, trainability. Yeah. We must train to be able to pivot our attention to the moment as needed, because by default, we're much more likely to get yanked around by preoccupations, uh, events that have happened in the fa- past, or frankly, worries about the future. So you may not be in this meeting because of the of the last meeting you had, or you may not be in it because the meeting you're about to have. Either way, it's problematic because you're missing what's happening right now. And that uh, that is something that uh, thankfully isn't just the reality of the way the mind works. It's something you can train to be better able to do. Yeah. And awareness of this like provides so many avenues to make some steps. And you make a number of invitations in the book on, on how to do this. And one of the things you write is, in the lab, we find that people who display better performance are better able to drop the distractions. They're able to allow the ink to fade when it's appropriate for it to do so, Make selectively making the decision, I'm not going to rewrite that. And the thing that came up for me reading that is to be aware of what's in your working memory and also what you don't want to rewrite. Tell me about that and, and what you mean by rewrite. <laughs> yeah. So that's a tricky one because rewriting in some sense is just that refreshing function. So like we were saying earlier, you know, that grocery list, repeating it over and over again. Now, oftentimes when we see that, when we use that term rumination, rumination is essentially a dysfunctional rewrite. We're not going anywhere with the information. So let's say something problematic happened in a meeting and you're, you're kind of, we might even say intentionally rubbernecking on the fact that this occurred. You kind of can't get past it. Mm. You're, you're in this loop. And what that looks like from the neural point of view is that in working memory, the memory trace, the temporary storage of the information regarding that event is going to replay over and over again. And you are actively participating in that rewrite function because you're remembering it again, and then you're remembering it again, and you're remembering it again. So when I say you're actively deciding not to rewrite it, it's not like you're saying, I'm going to block that out. It's that you're letting go and letting the memory fade. Because frankly, if you try to block it, it backfires. It's it's this paradoxical thing where I say, you know, if I say, for example, and this is a famous study called, you know, the white bear study. So if I say, okay, Dave, don't think about a white bear. Ready? Don't think about a white bear. <laughs> and I wait a little bit and I say, what are you thinking about? White bear. A white bear so yeah. the thing you say not to think about in an attempt to block or suppress ends up being on the whiteboard because it's relevant. It's the thing you're not supposed to think about. So it ends up staying on the whiteboard. 
So there is a specific way we have to train our mind to let it go and to fade. And that brings us to these solutions that we've established um, benefits for regarding mindfulness training, that really mindfulness is about uh, not rewinding the mind to the past and, and kind of rubbernecking on it, as I was saying, or fast forwarding the mind to the future, but keeping that button right on play to actually experience the moment to moment unfolding of our lives. But because rewind and fast forward are such prominent features of our mental life, we actually need to train ourselves to be better able to stay in play. Yeah, it's such a profound thing and simple in a way, but also if you haven't really given the intention to do that, I could see it being in a big lift for people to make that jump. And when you see people begin to make a bit of the leap to not rewinding as much, but starting to stay in play in the moment, what do you find that helps? The first thing that they'll say is, oh my goodness, I'm really here to get the data of what's happening in my life. You know, what we pay attention to in some sense is our life. Hmm. And if we are in the past in a horrible loop of, of hell we've experienced or in a, in a catastrophic simulation of our own making about a future that may never happen, that is your life. And frankly, not only will you feel worse, but you are unable to deal with the demands that are happening in this moment, get the data of what's happening in this moment. And that could be in the professional setting, but it can also be in the personal, in the personal context. So you know, some of the military leaders that we've worked with and that um, found mindfulness would say some of the most amazing things, but they weren't about some mission-driven issue. It's like, I could listen to the sound of my, my spouse's voice. I could play catch with my son and actually be there to, to see the smile on his face. So oftentimes, you know, as we think about um, what it means to be a leader, we don't really attend to the collateral damage in some sense of all that we miss when our mind isn't actually in the moment. And that's what gets returned to us. It's like we don't miss those moments. We catch ourselves more often. And there's a richness and a depth to our ability to live in what's happening right now. As a leader, we are the ones that are in charge of, of bettering the situation. And if we aren't seeing what's actually happening, the chances of us being able to solve the problem is really zero. So it, it, even though it may not feel good, it is necessary to get to good. And um, again, that's what we, what we hear from leaders over and over again that begin practicing mindfulness. You alluded to this a moment ago, but I think it's such a key thing that is counterintuitive to the way a lot of us think. We think of forgetting as a problem. And one of the things that really came out of your research for me is that forgetting is actually a good thing. And to the point you just made of like being able to set aside like the other things that are happening, like forgetting is actually good, isn't it? Yes. Yes. So many things the mind does that we might say are nuisances, like our flaws are actually features. You know, if you think about the last time you went to, uh, you know, drove somewhere and parked your car, if you couldn't remember when you left, you know, when you leave the store again, was it this time that I parked it here? Or was it the last time? And if every memory had equal weight of every time you parked your car somewhere, it would be so confusing that you wouldn't know how to behave or act. So some natural aspects of the decay of memory and experience are so profound that we kind of take them for granted. 
And sometimes, you know, we forget because it's advantageous to forget. So to know that these are just the way the brain works in order to advantage our ability to function in the moment um, and not get so upset about the fact that we do forget uh, could be useful. Yeah, indeed. And it's, um, I think in particular, like the kinds of folks in our audience like get inundated with so much data and information and decisions and context each day that there's certainly pieces of that that are really, really important and they need to act on, move on, continue to think about, strategize on. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that really isn't that important <laughs> to to stay with. And like you said, like the remembering where the car was for the last 16 times you've been there, it's yeah. just not important. And is there something you've come across that either in the moment or immediately after the moment that helps to sort that a bit? Like that helps to then clear off the whiteboard and create a little bit of white space that that is useful to people? You know, and we might shorthand what you just described, the success of it is discernment, oh, right? knowing yeah. what it is that's relevant to remember and what's relevant to not remember. That is something that people will describe as a function of mindfulness training. They're just better able to discern. And what that means is that there's a crispness in their attention as they were encoding the information and as they're recalling it and retrieving it. So that kind of clarity of mind, it takes kind of two things. It takes incredible focus and narrowing, like we were talking about the flashlight, but it also takes this other quality that I think a lot of leaders may not be aware they can cultivate this receptivity, this broad stance of kind of getting the, what we might even call, you know, people call this like getting the pulse of what's going on. In some sense, that's just like being completely observably present. Another way to put it is listening. So you're allowing the information to come in without already having a constrained story about what you're listening to or what the story or what the, what is going to be said and what it means allowing it to sort of all hit the mind at, at sort of a level playing field and then use your capacity to decide and inquire to determine what's worth pursuing and remembering uh, and, and what should be informing your actions versus settling away and kind of fading away. So I think it's both of the, the qualities of, of focus and broad receptive observational stance together can really provide us a way to discern. And I think the second one is what people may not do enough, like just listening. Yeah. Yeah. And what a great invitation this is for doing a bit of this mindfulness training. And I shared with Amishi offline that I think many of us in this community, our listeners, understand the value of mindfulness, espouse it, uh, even have done a little bit of it in in the past but but I think for a lot of us we sort of struggle with the well what do I really get from that and I think this conversation is like very illuminating for me on like the practical things that we could really get that help us to not only have a bit of a a bit of less stress in our lives and in our days but also to actually do a better job as a leader and as an executive to pay attention to what's most important and i hope that we're just hitting on a small piece of your work i hope that folks would then take the next step who who've really found this useful to go into the book and start to start to explore some of the mindfulness training and practices 
that I think will be a really great entry point for it. So thank you so much for sharing this. Um, before I let you go, I uh, I wanted to ask you about speaking of our minds, like something you've changed your mind on. You know, experts are learning and growing, and they're also changing their minds sometimes. As you've been doing this research on mindfulness and the work you've been doing over these years, what's something that you've changed your mind on? It's a great question. And I would say, ironically, it's mindfulness itself that I've changed my mind on. Huh. So, you know, people that are listening to this can't see me, but I'm an Indian woman. I grew up in Chicago, but have very much Indian tradition permeated my upbringing. I saw my parents meditating from a young age. And uh, the notion of meditation was certainly something I was familiar with, but I had a real skepticism about it and thought, that's great for them, not for me could not see really the value as it would interface at all with anything in my professional life as a hard-nosed neuroscientist. But as I became more uh, familiar with the terrain of attention and its vulnerabilities, I realized, you know, there's not a lot of great solutions existing on how we can actually protect against these vulnerabilities of attention. And knowing how powerful it is, we got to figure out solutions. So we tried many different things in the lab. And one of the things that we tried was mindfulness. And what I realized once I started getting over my own skepticism and changing my mind about, you know, maybe even it's worth giving a try, was that it's entirely about attention. It's about attention. And frankly, it's about training attention so that all three of those systems of attention are strengthened. So we don't necessarily even think about, have to think about mindfulness as stress reduction or a nice to have. Maybe if you go on a spa vacation, you might do a little yoga and mindfulness. This is about performance enhancement. And in the same way that you know, successful uh, people, successful leaders know that they need to invest in their physical well-being, you know, their nutritional well-being, et cetera, the health of all of these things, we need to do this for our mind. And the mind is trainable. And one of the ways that we're finding is probably one of the most robust ways to train attention, strengthen it and protect it is mindfulness. So I had to overcome my own biases against it as not a serious endeavor uh, to open myself up enough to see that from the wisdom traditions of the world, this thing called mindfulness meditation, actually, there's a reason it's been around for millennia. It's actually quite helpful. I'm just bringing in the, the perspectives of, of a neuroscientist in to evaluate and study it. And we're continuing to find that, yes, the wisdom of the world is correct. This is a very useful thing to do. And it's actually something you do. It's not a concept you understand. It's a practice. And if you if you understand it, but don't do it, just like physical exercise, it's not going to make much of an impact. So I would definitely invite people who find this conversation interesting to go beyond a conceptual understanding of mindfulness and actually see what the workout is about. Now that you understand what attention is, you can see why working it out may be useful. And there is a way to do that in a protective manner so that the next high stress interval, uh, you can get through with not just more success in the outward sense, but more of an experience of success from your from your direct experience. Amishi Ja is the author of Peak Mind, Find Your Focus, Own Your Attention, Invest 12 Minutes a Day. Amishi, thank you so much for your work. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. If this conversation was helpful, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them's episode 437, How to Know What You Don't Know with Art Markman. Art is a psychologist researcher at the University of Texas. He joined me to talk about metacognition, that uh, that sense of 
knowing what we know and knowing what we don't know. Tons of practical things in that conversation that we can do from a learning standpoint and understanding also some of the blind spots that we have inside our own learning. Episode 437 for that. I'd also recommend a closely related topic, episode 511, how to be present with Dave Crenshaw. Dave and I in that episode talked about some of the practical things he's uncovered in his coaching and his research on how to really be present with others. Uh, Tons of great compliments to this conversation. If that is something that you find to be a bit of a struggle, either for yourself or maybe someone that you're supporting or work with or a colleague, episode 511, a ton of practical tips there. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 513, Help Your Brain Learn with Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa is one of the top neuroscientists in the world. Uh, tons of research on the brain and how it works. Uh, I learned so much in reading her book and in that conversation. Uh, Knowing a little bit of the brain science, as we talked about in this episode as well, can really help you from a leadership standpoint to understand what it is that our biology actually indicates that we probably don't want to try to fight as leaders and organizations, but actually to align with and understanding some of those core human biological Things, especially around the brain, is so helpful for us to be able to interact with people well and to support them well and their success. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website, but a lot easier than trying to find them on your own is actually just to utilize the weekly leadership guide that comes to your inbox each week. In every guide, I prominently highlight the related episodes that I've mentioned here on the show. I know many of you have told me over the years that cross-referencing to other episodes that are related to the current episode has been so helpful to you to go down a further path of exploring some of these key topics. I'm going to keep doing that, and I try to make it really easy in the weekly leadership guide of highlighting those specifically. So if you're on the road or working out or wherever you're listening to the show, uh, you don't necessarily have to capture those now, but you can pretty easily reference those in the weekly guide. That comes to you once a week on email, and it's one of the many benefits of free membership. If you haven't set up your free membership already, I'm inviting you to do so. Go over to coachingforleaders.com. Once you set up your free membership, you'll get that weekly guide once a week in your inbox. Plus, you'll get access to my entire library, database by topic, all of the episodes, uh, searchable by topic since 2011, uh, the member cast, plus a ton of other resources inside the free membership. All of that at coachingforleaders.com. Look forward to seeing you over on the site. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Ruth Gotian to the show. She is going to be helping us to discover how to lead and retain high performers, a ton of practical things we can do. Looking forward to that conversation with Ruth next Monday. Have a great week.